Welcome to Downton. Hello there. Emma speaking. Welcome to Shall We Go Through, the Downton Abbey fan podcast. What? 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 Hi everyone. I hope you're doing well. And if you have listened to my special episode on Downton Abbey, a new era that I made with my friend, I hope you liked it. I know it was a bit chaotic, but it was very fun to make. So I hope you liked it. And if you haven't listened to that, well, it's just us being really, really excited to talk about Downton Abbey, a new era. But today we're here to start season two. I'm not going to make a long introduction because as you probably know now, I love to talk. So we are going to be here for hours. So I'm going to start right now. I'm going to start by giving you my title. This episode, I called it the one with the crepe Suzette. I know the title is a bit on the funny side, but you know, war is here. There's a lot of bad things happening in this episode, like really a lot of anxiety and serious stuff that I wanted to make a more like, not jolly, but funny title. And I love food. So I thought, let's just put food in the title. Obviously, I'm sure if I tell you just like that, the one with the crepe Suzette, you know which scene, which scenes I even want to say I'm talking about. Like, I, I'm pretty sure you have it in your mind if you know the show. So I think it kind of work. So like I said, we ended up last season with the declaration of war. So now the war is here and we have make a bit of a jump in time uh, because we ended the season one in August 1914. And now we're in 1916. I don't know ex- exactly where. What I can tell you is the episode starts in the middle of the Battle of the Somme. And this battle took place from the 1st of July to the 18th of November 1916. So it's around that time that we are. And so obviously, with war, things are changing. At the house, we are preparing an event. And so they prepare a concert to raise funds for the hospital. And so a lot of things are different because first, Cora is down for breakfast which is something we have never seen. Usually she always takes her breakfast in bed. Even Robert is surprised, like, oh, we don't usually see you like down here. But with the preparation for the concert, Isabel is coming and apparently Violet threatened to look in. And I I like uh, when she said, I'm sure they would love it if they find me still in bed. So yeah, she decided I'm going to get up because first I have Isabel coming in and if my mother-in-law is coming, Let's just be, you know, up and about, ready for whatever is going to happen. And there were um, some lines that were cut that I've read in the script book where Robert says, I don't know what mama can do. And Cora answers, what does she always do? Frighten us into submission. And Julian Fellows made a comment. He said, the fact is, Violet is a tiresome mother-in-law and Cora is a patient woman. Well, ain't that the truth? Because... If you have listened to my season one in a nutshell, well, I said that Cora is way too nice and way too patient, especially with Violet. I still don't know how she did it all those years, but I do not have her patience or her kindness. So obviously we talked about Violet. Well, Violet comes in and her entrance, I mean, 
her entrance is always like it's something like you see when she arrives you see that that's like that's the queen of the place you know and actually her entrance kind of make me think about her entrance in the first episode of the first season where she was dressed in black and here in this episode she also wears black where she has black coat and a black hat but what i like is that on her hat there are feathers and so it actually make me think about again uh, maleficent you know because maleficent she has a crow as a pet and yeah it may think it makes me think about that you know it's violet so first time you see her she always has some good lines to give us at that moment isabel is uh thanking robert and cora to let the concert taking place at downton and she says they will enjoy it even more because it's here and so when violet arrives she says and you can charge so much more for the tickets and i like because when she arrives like everyone's looking at her and say oh god okay i don't know what's going to happen but it it started even robert is like oh what are you doing here like it's really early and she and she says that war makes early rises of us all i thought if i'm here i can take care of the flowers but well cora already took care of the flowers when she said that she wants to take care of the flowers you see robert looking at his wife like i mean you you did that right already and cora she tries to stay calm and say well you know we did it but if you want like you see that she doesn't want to have another fight She's like okay do whatever you want and uh i like it because then she talks with robert say well is there a problem with me taking care of the flowers and uh, again, kind of be not insulting Cora, but saying that her flowers are not good enough for those events. So then she said, what, what do you have planned for the concert? And Robert's like, well, technically, absolutely everything we can do to raise money. And I love this line from Violet. Hot bottom toast with the countess and tuppence a slice. I love this line because it makes me think about something that Robert will say in season six. Bananas. But I thought it was really funny and I like it because she always says something unpredictable. You know what I mean? Like when she says that, I mean, her son is like, what are you talking about? Like, I mean, she would hate to be predictable. I'm just saying. And so then since she said, I'm going to take care of the flowers. So she goes to, into the library and when she arrives, she sees the flowers and she's like, oh my God, what is this? Anna is here. And she says, Anna, help me do battle with this monstrosity. Looks like a creature from the lost world. And there's a line that was cut that Violet says after like rearranging the flowers. And I thought that this line was very funny. She says, that's the best we can do. At least it stopped looking like a brush for a witch to ride home on. It made me laugh when I read it. So I thought I should share that with you. So like we said, war changes things. So we have now a concert that is being raised for the hospital because of, you know, all the wounded and uh, soldiers and stuff. Then we have Carson. Carson, it's always all hands on deck. But the issue now is that there's just Carson. We do not see all the people that work at Downton, but there's a lot of people that are not here anymore because they are at war. And he still wants to do it like it was done before the war. And Mrs. Hughes, she ask him to steady on because there's a war on and so obviously if there's a war you can't expect things to be the same but he does not agree keeping up standards is the only way to show the germans that they will not beat us in the end well 
give me some warning the next time we're expecting Germans at Downton and I'll see what I can do. What I like is that he said, oh, I need to remember to ask Anna to be ready in case we need her for tonight because we're going to have dinner. I like it because if you remember, in the first episode of the show, because Bates couldn't serve a table, he said that, you know, maybe we need to have a maid serving a table. And Robert told him, you know, cheer up, Carson, there are worst things happening in the world. And Carson answered him, not worse than a maid serving a duke. Well, we're not here yet to the maids serving at table, but we, we're close, bananas. So I thought it was crazy that now he just think maybe not the maids, but Anna. Anna can help me serve at table. And he tries to keep standards, but he can try as long as he wants. There will be a time when we need to stop because he will not be able to do it, but all the men will be off to war. And so the war also changes things for our upstairs people because Edith is learning to drive and Branson is teaching her which I think is really good like you know well obviously it's, it would be quite practical because if every young man would go off to war no one would be maybe able to drive the people that are still in the country during dinner she's kind of happy she said well I'm getting better but apparently Branson didn't say that to Robert I felt quite sorry for her because she was really happy to say, well, I'm driving. And when all the girls are in Sybil's room helping her pack, Edith is, I think she's really happy to learn to drive because finally it is something that Mary can do, Sybil can do. It would be something that only her can do. It would not make her better than her sister, but having a skill that the other two don't have. I think it's important for her. And I'm with her. I mean, if you can learn how to drive, go. Take initiatives, that's great. And so, um, like I said, Sibyl is leaving home. We're going to talk about it just after that. But Edith, she's, like I said, really happy about the fact that she can drive, that she says, Why don't I drive you? She's taking enough chance with her life as it is. Oh, granny. I thought that was really funny too. Violet's like, why, why are you learning to drive? And I like her answers because she said, Why can't I be a chauffeur if uh, Sibyl is leaving to train to be a nurse? So Edith... Is like, if she can be a nurse, why can't I be the sh a chauffeur? Because when all the young men are going to leave, well, who will drive? And I'm with her, totally. And there were some lines that were cut that I thought were quite interesting. Uh, because when Violet asks Edith, why is this driving mania? Well, Mary, she's saying something like, oh, it has nothing to do with Anthony Stratton. Like you do not learn how to drive to try to get him back or something like that. And obviously Edith is like, oh yeah, you're the one to talk because it's because of her that he left without proposing. And in Cora, she's kind of sorry. And she says it's a pity that he was too shy because she was so sure he would propose at a garden party. Obviously we, we all knew that's what he wanted to do because... You know, they talked about it at Cora and Edith when Edith said he has a question to ask me and he hopes I'm going to say yes. I mean, we knew that's what he wanted to do, but thanks to Mary, never happened. And at that moment, you know, when Cora said that, I was so sure he was going to propose, Mary and Edith are exchanging killing looks. But that was cut. But I wanted to talk about it because we don't talk about Stratton right now, but we left Edith waiting for a proposal and it never came, so... I think it's good if she's like, I want to do something with my life instead of just waiting because, well, maybe I'm never going to get married since 
all the young men are going to war, half of them are probably going to die. So maybe I'm just going to be a chauffeur. And so we said, Sybil is leaving to train to be a nurse. But why does she want to be a nurse? Well, at breakfast, Sybil receives a letter. And we can see it's upsetting her. Like she has tears in her eyes. And Robert is concerned. Cora is concerned when they realize something is wrong because she leaves the table. And Cora even says she had more bad news. And obviously it's war. So she's bound to. It's sad, but she's bound to have bad news. And Isabella came to the house, like we said. And when she's leaving, she sees that Sybil, like something is wrong. And Sybil, well, she's sad and she said that uh, Tom Bellasis has been killed and that when they met when it was the season. And obviously it would be really hard on her because she had her first season in 1914, so just before the beginning of the war. And so obviously all the men she has met there, they're all at the front. So yeah, obviously uh, what it's had. And she says this beautiful line. Well, I think it's really beautiful, even if it's really sad. Sometimes it feels as if all the men I ever dance with are dead. And actually, this is something that was said to Julian Fellows by one of his great aunts. And if I remember the story correctly, uh, apparently, so after the war, she had a letter to say to her that her husband would come home. So she was so happy that she dressed up. Because she had something, you know, like we're going to go dancing or having dinner or something fancy because he's home. But what was not said to her is like, he's coming home, but on his deathbed, like he was going to die. So that is pretty rough and sad. And then when the war was over, at the first party she went to, again, she put a nice dress, like, you know, almost like you're happy that happy to go to a nice event after everything the country and the world has been through and when she arrived at this party she thought she was wrong she thought it was just an, a ladies party because she was looking for the men and then she realized there were some men but they were like three or four and she realized that there were not that many men because all the others were dead or maybe too wounded to be here and said so this sentence to him she said sometimes it feels as if all the men I ever danced with are dead. And I think, like I said, it's really heartbreaking, literally. But I think it's a really beautiful way to say it. I don't know if you know what I mean. But yeah, anyway, that was the story. So Sybil says that she feels also useless because all those men that she met, like, you know, two months before the war, they sacrificed their life while she is doing nothing or she thinks she's doing nothing so she wants to do something but a real job something that matters and so well Isabel says well you maybe can be a nurse because obviously that would be helpful with all the wounded the war has made obviously a nurse it's always helpful and so she tells her that there's a training course in York and maybe she can see if she can get Sybil in and obviously when they're talking about that O'Brien is here listening well she wants to ask something to Isabel but you know it's so Brian if she hears something that maybe she can cause trouble with it you know she's here and well simple she's interested and so she said well what will I need and Isabel said well it might be something of a rough awakening and I like when she said that because she doesn't tell her oh it's going to be nice not really I mean it's going to be completely different from the life that you have lived until now 
And like I said, O'Brien is in the shadows listening. And at the moment, Isabel sees her and she's, she's annoyed. You know, she's like, O'Brien, what is it? Your face cream trouble. What do you want? And then, so Sibyl, she's, like I said, she's really interested. What, what do I need? And Isabel said, maybe you can ask Mrs. Patmore. She can give you some lessons in cooking because it's better to know a little more than nothing. But obviously, O'Brien heard some things. And so she is telling Cora what she heard. And she knows exactly what's, what you realize that she still is manipulative, like O'Brien. But I want to say in a nicer way. I don't know how to say that, but you can feel that even if she still manipulates a bit Cora, I don't know why I feel like she eats in a nicer way because she still feels guilty about the whole, you know, soap, miscarriage, all this thing that we will try not to remember too vividly because it's very heartbreak. But so she says, you know, like, I mean, they want to use her. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, she knows exactly what to say, which is, it's horrible. I mean, the men, I mean, they're disfigured. I mean, it's awful. So obviously, Cora, I mean, Sibyl is her baby. So for her, it's like, no, there's no way my little girl is going to see these horrors. Like, no way. So she's angry. And she talks with Isabel and Violet in the car. Uh, no, it's not the car, it's the carriage. Well, anyway. And, you know, she's really angry. She, well, she's angry, but, you know, Cora being angry, Cora never really shouts, you know, like angry, Robert's angry. She's angry being calm. And funny thing, Violet agrees with Isabel. You can't pretend it's not respectable when every day we're treated to pictures of queens and princesses in Red Cross uniform ladling soup down the throat of some unfortunate. But Sibyl won't be ladling soup. She'll have to witness unimaginable horrors. And she's an innocent. I mean, you can sense that she is scared and you can sense why. I mean, she's frightened for her daughter, for what she might see. And you can understand why she is like that. But I, when, you know, Isabel tells her... Her innocence will protect her. For once, I agree with cousin Isabel. Sibyl must be allowed to do her bit like everyone else. Which I think it's quite true. But I can understand Cora, why, you know, because it's still her baby and she's still a mommy. But I'm with Sybil too, definitely. So Sybil is following Isabel's advice and she's asking help from Mrs. Patmore and Daisy. And Mrs. Patmore at the beginning, she's not too, she's not very keen to do it. But Daisy, she's, you can see that she wants to. She's like, yes, we're going to help. Right, Mrs. Patmore, we're going to help. And I like it because she's really... Of course, she's still a lady of the house, so there's this kind of distance. But the way Sibyl is talking with them, you can see that for her, there's no distance at that moment. You know, she's like, I need help. I need to learn how to make tea. And I like their faces because like, you don't know how to make tea. And you can see she's a bit embarrassed when she says, well, not really. And the kitchen men are laughing. It's like, yeah, no, you're right. It is a joke. And I don't want to be a joke, so I need your help. So... In the end, Mrs. Papmore is like, okay, we're going to help you. I really like this moment when she gives a kettle to Sibyl and says, do you know how to fill a kettle? And was like, well, <laughs> everyone knows that. And then when she tries to fill the kettle, she puts water absolutely everywhere. <laughs> I like when Mrs. Papmore said, well, not everyone apparently. But I like this scene because it makes me think about when Sybil was helping Gwen. You know, there's no distance. It was two, just two girls helping each other. And it's kind of the same as happening here. You know, it's girls helping out each other. And I, I really love it. 
But I mean, Cora at that moment, she's still angry at Elizabeth because she doesn't want to let her baby go. And during dinner, Elizabeth has to say something to Sybil. And so Sybil say, well, cousin Isabel has got me a place in a training course in York to be a nurse. And Cora is like, we don't need to talk about that now. Like, and the look she gives Isabel, I mean, oh my God. Cora, she doesn't give a lot of killing looks, but when she does, they're the worst that you've seen on the show, I'm telling you. Because she's always so sweet, you know, there's a lot of love or sometimes a bit sadness in her looks. But when she gives you a killing look, I can tell you, you're dead. And so at a moment in the servants' hall, Carson, he's like, well, did I saw Lady Sybil in the kitchen? And so Mrs. Papmore like, yeah, well, she wants to learn some cooking. And Daisy's like, well, she's going to train to be a nurse. So she says she needs to learn how to cook and do other things. And so Carson's like, oh, well, that's her ladyship. No, because that would be the proper thing to do. And Daisy is like, no, it's supposed to be a surprise. And I like the idea that, but first, I think Sibo doesn't want to say things because she thinks that her mother would say no. But Palmer says, well, maybe if it's a surprise and I can show her what I've learned, she would be happy and proud and it would be easier for her to let me go. That's how I imagine things. And I like Mrs. Hughes when she says, Mr. Carson, it speaks well of Lady Sybil that she wants to help the wounded. Let's not give her away. And of course, I love Mrs. Hughes. She's the best. And this scene with Sybil in the kitchen, I think is one of my favorite of the episode, truly. Like, <laughs> because she's here in the kitchen, so she's cooking. And Mrs. Padmore, she sees what she's supposed to, well, I don't know what she's supposed to do, but she sees that. What in Wonderland do you call that? And what I love, she literally, she talked to her like she would talk to any of her kitchen mate. Like, what the hell is that? And then she just realized it's Lady Sybil. So she's like, oh, well, okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm talking to the daughter of my employers. I need to be calmer and a bit more respectful. I mean, I do not fully understand what you're trying to do, my lady. Oh, I knew he wasn't supposed to look like this. No, my lady, I would go so far as to say there is no food on the earth that is supposed to look like that. I love this. And what I was then... Daisy, she goes to see her and she's like, we're going to start all over again. But I love that now Daisy's like, well, I'm going to help you too. Like, I don't know, I think it's really sweet because in this way, you know, we had Sybil helping Gwen becoming secretary and now we have Daisy and Mrs. Papmore helping her to learn how to cook, to be a nurse. And I love it. I, I love it. I think it's really sweet. And then Carson being the drama queen that he is, he's coming to the drawing room to see Cora because... Something has been going on, and I don't feel quite easy that you've not been made aware of it. Goodness, what is this dark secret? I just like Cora's answers. Like, she was like, okay, drama queen, you know, like, what can it be? Because when Cousin says that, you think, like, it's something really bad. You know, I don't know, like, she's beating a bomb. I don't know, but, you know, like, you, you think, like, the word's going to end because of that. And so, obviously, when Cora learns that, apparently... Lady Sib was in the kitchen. She's like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> what is she doing? And then I think this scene is so cute, but funny at the same time. We have Sybil, Mrs. Papua and Daisy in the kitchen. And Sybil, she made a cake for her mother. I mean, this is so sweet. So they're in the kitchen. And you have Branson coming in the kitchen and looking at them. Well, looking at Sybil, I think, more than the others. But yeah. 
And Kurashi looks at her through the passage window. And she looks so proud. I mean, she's so emotional. She has tears in her eyes. She's so proud of her baby. I think this is a very sweet scene. But what I think is funny, it's Carson behind. like, I was not feeling good about it. You know, like, I think it is absolutely not proper. So I had to tell you. Apparently it's a surprise, but I had to tell you. And when Sibyl takes her cake out of the oven she's so happy you know she's like I made a cake and you know I can feel her you know and it's like when you do your first cake alone you're so proud of yourself for example I as a kid I always baked cakes with my mother but the first time I did one myself alone just me I was so proud like I made that myself so I can imagine how she's feeling especially that she has never ever cooked in her life so she is proud of her and she can be because I'm proud of her too. And like I said, Cora, she's so proud. And she says to Carson, I was worried about Lady Sybil, but I'm not worried anymore. So you don't mind, my lady? No, I do not mind. And I'm very grateful to you. And Carson, the cake will be a surprise whether you approve or not. So please don't give me away. And I love how she says that, but I just want to tell you, Cora, I do believe they noticed you. I know there has been some talk about this scene in the fandom, like how, how was it possible that neither Sybil, Daisy or Mrs. Patmore had noticed that Cora was there looking at them because they were Cora and Carson. And I mean, they are really tall people. I'm saying because maybe if you're like small, like if you're smaller, you can go and nobody notice you. But two, I mean, Carson is a giant and Crush is really tall. So I believe there's a chance that they will notice them. But I still think it's really cute, the scene, you know. And so the girls are in Sibyl's room to help her pack. I really love this scene because Violet is here and she says to Mrs. Hughes, because it's Mrs. Hughes helping her because Anna, she's not feeling well. Why? We're going to talk about that later. But she says, you know, make sure she only packs things that she can put on and off without a maid because she would be on her own. And I love the fact that, so you have Edith, Sybil, Cora, but Violet too, like it's three generations that just, you know, I, just, I don't know how to explain that, but I just love this sweet scene. They try to, you know, Edith, she wants Sybil to take a nightdress and Sybil's like, I would never wear that. I'm supposed to train to be a nurse. When would I find the time to go to a soiree, you know? And so Mary is like, take one just in case, like a more simpler one. And this dress, this dress that she accepts to pack, we're going to see that dress a lot, bananas. But I think it's really sweet. And I love the fact that Violet, she's supportive. And even Sybil, she says, you know, thank you for being such a sport. And I really like that. And where Cora, she's so emotional, like she's like, where well, she's about to cry. She said, the first of you to leave the nest. And Edith's like, poor mama. She always feels these things so dreadfully. That's her American blood. Well, because obviously, if she's emotional, it's just because she's American, you know, not because it's her baby that is about to leave home. No, it must be because she's American. And so as Sybil is leaving, and you can see that she is a bit sad, you know, in the car, she has tears in her eyes. And obviously it would be yeah, you have the right to be emotional. Like you're leaving home and even if it's just for two months when you have never left your family, it's a lot, you know, and you're going to train. It's not just you're going to your vacation. You 
going to train to be a nurse. So it's something completely different from what we're used to. And Kurawa, she's sad, but you can see that she's so proud. Like, of course, she's a bit sad. Like we said, it's a baby living, but she's so proud of her. Like, you can feel it. Makes me a bit emotional. And so then Sybil arrives at the training college and she's with Branson. Mm -hmm. Because, well, we sense that he likes her a bit too much and she's not completely insensitive. And well, <laughs> so at that moment, Branson, he decides this is the moment, the right moment to make my declaration. Like he literally, this is, this is a declaration of love, truly. I love this scene. The only thing that I'm not really keen on with Branson and Sybil is that he's so sure that she loves him too that he kind of, he kind of twists her arm. I don't know if you can say that. I don't know if the right expression, but it's, it, it's almost like he wants to persuade her that she loves him too. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, when he says, you know, like the war, when it's going to end, the world would be different. Of course, it would be different like the social classes, things would be different. It's not going to be the same as it was. Then he says, Then bet on me. I promise to devote every waking minute to your happiness. I'm terribly flattered. Don't say that. Why not? Because flattered is a word posh people use when they're getting ready to say no. <laughs> that sounds more like you. Please don't make fun of me. It's cost me all I've got to say these things. I can understand him when he says it cost me all... I've got to say these things because first it's always kind of hard and takes a lot of courage to declare your love to someone but you're doing it now knowing that this is kind of an impossible love right now right this can't be happening because she is from another social class than you yeah and that's why I think it's really strong and he's really like no I'm going to take my chance now he must say you know what I'm going to give my resignation because they won't want me to stay if they know that I told you that I love you. I like the fact that she's, well, they, they won't hurt you. Well, not for me. I would never tell them that you told me that. So you can see that she's not, like I said, she's not insensitive. I think she doesn't know if she loves him. I think she likes him. That's for sure. But I think she doesn't know if she loves him. You know, when someone tells you, well, I love you. And you're like, well, thank you. I think it's that because she doesn't know herself or feelings. And so she doesn't know what to say. But I think it was really uh, brave of him to say that. And this scene, actually, a bit, not all, but just when he says, then bet on me, it makes me think about a scene in Grey's Anatomy. And it's in season two, I think, when Meredith, she comes to Derek, she asks him to make a choice between her and his wife. And she tells him, pick me, choose me, love me. And it's not exactly the same, but it's, it's almost like what Branson says. He says, you, you don't really want your old life back, right? So please bet on me, like pick me, choose me, love me and not your old life and whatever suitors you can have from the aristocracy. I don't know if you understand me, but yeah, it kind of makes me think about that. And so then later at night, Cora uh, and O'Brien are talking together and they're speaking of Sybil. I can see that Cora is like still a bit sad about Sybil leaving. 
And they talk a bit about Thomas because obviously if there is one person that has news from Thomas, it's O'Brien because no one else would want to have news from Thomas. And so Cora is like, well, how is he? And O'Brien, she says, He's well enough, my lady. I don't think he'd mind coming home. Oh, I wish he could, O'Brien. And there was a line that was cut when, so she said, how wish he could, O'Brien. And then she said, how I wish they all could. And you can fear that she's, um, of course, she's concerned because, you know, she has no son that went to war, but that doesn't mean she doesn't understand what is happening there. So we talked about Thomas, and I thought now we're going to talk about men and war, the men of Downton Abbey. But before talking about the ones that are at the front, we're going to talk about the ones that are not at the front. And first we have William. And William, he wants to go, but his father doesn't want him to go. And obviously because his father is the, the only family he's got left. So obviously he doesn't want his son to go off to war. He's really upset about it. He even says to Mrs. Papmore, he said, even Thomas is at the front in the medical call. I like this little exchange because, well, she made a bit of a joke of Thomas. But we're going to talk about that later. That look come as a nasty shock. Oh, you can make fun of him, Mrs. Patmore, but he's fighting for his king and country, and I'm not. Well, I dare say you won't have long to wait. Well, I hope you're right. Do you? Because I don't. I hope very much that I am wrong. Because I think Mrs. Patmore doesn't have children, and not saying that William is like a son to her, but they're all very fond of him. And obviously no one wants to see a young man like that, so sweet, dying. And I do not think that there's any mother out there that are really happy to send their son or any of their kids to war. And you can see there's something he says a lot, like I think he asks him a lot and his father doesn't want him to end. It's like, if he's caught and he doesn't have any choice, then, well, yes, you will go because you have to, but he doesn't want him to... He doesn't want his son to say, I want to go. And again, I can understand him because he has no family left. So he doesn't want his only son to die. You know, parents, for them, it's like, I'm not sending you to fight for king and country. I'm sending you there to die. So I can understand why his father uh, doesn't want him to go. And during the concert, women stand and they give white feathers to people in the assembly. And they give one to William. And actually, they give it to men that were not in uniform, well, men that didn't go to war. So, and they call them cowards. Robert is so angry at that moment. And you can see that William, he's ashamed. Ashamed and humiliated. Because he wants to go, but he doesn't go because of his father. And then you have people just telling him that he's a coward. I mean, I feel really sorry for him. And so during dinner, Cora, she's concerned for him. And, you know, she's like, I mean, that was horrible what this woman said to you. And Robert, he's still angry. He's like, why, why did they do that? And Edith, well, she's not wrong, but she has to put her foot in her mouth. She says, no, it's, of course, it's unkind. But when there are a lot of men dying, it's hard to watch young men do nothing. William, at that moment, he feels even more ashamed. And Robert, he's, he fears for him because, well, he doesn't understand the whole ashamed, humiliated thing. So William feels really bad. And Daisy, she tries to cheer him up. You can see that she has grown. She even says, so proud, she says, well, you know, I'm not afraid of electricity anymore. She tries to cheer him up. And she says, you know, no one wants to go to war, which is the truth. 
technically. Well, William wants to go more because it's a question of honor, but truly no one wants to go because it's awful. And so she thinks about something that would cheer him up and she kisses him. And that obviously, well, William at first, he's like, well, you just pity me. And she's like, wait, I've kissed you. No, you wanted me too. So now enjoy it. And at that moment, William is like, oh, so if you kiss me, that means you like me. So you'll be my girl. And she's like, uh, what? He even says, because if you were my girl, I know I could tackle anything. And you can see Daisy, she's not very comfortable. Like, this was not what she had planned, to be honest. You can see that. She's like, oh, yeah, okay. And about this white feather situation, Branson also got one. But the difference between Branson and William is that Branson has no intention to go to war. It has been said uh, along the episode, you will have to go. And he's like, yeah, well, I will figure it out when, you know, they call me. He has no intention to fight for king and country because he's Irish. He's like, I'm not going to fight for an English king. Like, no. And so when he receives his white feathers, he almost makes a joke out of it. He's like, well, I'm in a uniform. And the thing is, he's not humiliated because he doesn't give them the power to humiliate him. So he's like, I don't give a damn about that. And then we have Mosley. And what Koashi asks him uh, if he's ready, you know, when they're going to call him. And he says that he, they won't call him because he has been discharged by the army. But he doesn't really know why. And at that moment, so it's when Cora, Violet and Isabel, they were together in the carriage. And so Isabel arrives home and Mosley is here to open the door. So, you know, it's like, well, I don't know why, but apparently I won't go. And Violet, she says this curious line god moves in a mysterious way he's wonders to perform and the look she has you're like there's something a bit fishy about it and well obviously there was something fishy because dr clarkson is at crawley house and he's speaking with isabel and he tells her that there's too many wounded at the hospital and they're going to have new people coming in and there's a moment when he's like we're going to put all these people and so they realize that they have to make a choice. They can treat them, but they can't be a place for convalescence. And so but that is really important for what's going to happen next. Bananas. And then in this talk, Clarkson, he's a bit worried for Mosley. He's like, well, is he okay? You know, because he's kind of have troubles with his lungs. And <laughs> Isabel's like, what? It's Lady Grantham. You know, she asked me to row to um, the war office about that and about William too because apparently he has a bad skin condition and so at that moment you're like okay because since the beginning you're like why William has been called you know like maybe Mosley he's a bit old so you're like maybe okay but why William he's young I mean yeah well Violet has put her nose into it and well I mean Isabel she's not she's like oh she said that mm-hmm okay I mean, this whole thing, it was missed. You know, Violet versus Isabel with Clarkson in the middle. I mean, it was a long time since we had had this a little fight like that. So Isabel has summoned Violet for tea. And like I said, you have Isabel on one side, Violet on the other, and Clarkson just trying to calm everything. And obviously he can't because there's no way to calm the situation between these two. 
And Savage's like, well, I don't know what I've done wrong. It would be terrible for poor old Mr. Mosley if his only son would die. And then, you know, poor Mr. Mason, if the only family he has left would die too. Isabel is like, well, yeah, of course it's tragic, but you can't choose. Like, it's, it's a war. Everybody has to make an effort. Like, everybody has to play the part. Like, just you can't just choose just like that. And Clarkson, he's trying, he's like, yeah, I mean, she's right. <laughs> oh, my God. And Violet says that. Do you want Mosley to die? Of course I don't. Well... Clarkson's face is like, okay, I'm, I'm out of this fight. I'm out of it. <laughs> what I love in this scene, it's Mosley. In this scene, because he's in the background, so he says nothing. But just the acting. I mean, I already said it, but Kevin Doyle is so fantastic. He's so funny. And you feel for him too, because he's, you know, the subject of the fight. Oh, poor Mosley. But then... I'm a bit on Isabel's side when she says, I don't want my own son to die either, but this is a war and we must be in it together. High and low, rich and poor. There can be no special cases because every man at the front is a special case to someone. So Clarkson is like, yeah, so you're right. I'm going to write to the war office and change what I've said. Obviously, you feel really bad for Mosley because it was literally there and they were like talking about him. It's like, okay. But then Mosley comes to see Dr. Clarkson and technically asks him to not write to the wolf is about him. And then says, well, because I do have some troubles with my lungs. And you understand that, you don't know if it's completely true, but then said that he doesn't want to go to war. He was kind of relieved when he, he was discharged by the army because like Daisy said, no one wants to go to war. And so well, Clarkson is like, okay. Since the army has already discharged you, we're not, I'm not going to say anything about you. I'm just going to say something about William. But before leaving, it's like, but Mosley, I hope you will help the war effort. And then let's talk about Robert. Because Robert wants to go to war. Well, he has already been to the front because he uh, did the South African war. And he wants to go because... He feels it's his duty. And so in the beginning of the episode, he's dressed in uniform by William. And he says that it appears the army doesn't want him. And the way he's saying that, you realize it's hurting him, that the army doesn't want him. But then at breakfast, he receives a letter and he's pleased. And even Cora's like, please say it's something nice because... I mean, we're all tired of the bad news. And he's like, yes. And apparently it seems that he's back in the army properly. Well, that's what he thinks. And he's so happy. But Cora is not. Really. She's like, what? But they told you you were not. You can't just, you know, be in the army, not in the army. Like, no. Oh, yeah. And just about Robert being in, in uniform. <laughs> in the commentary, if you watch the episode with the commentary of uh, Julian Fellows, Gareth Neem and Liz Trowbridge. I love watching it because sometimes Julian just says things just like that. The middle of the episode is really funny. And he said at moments, Hugh looks really good in uniforms. Um, well, yes, I'm not going to say otherwise, especially the red one, the red jackets. I mean, the men, they all look so good. And so, yeah, Julian, he said that the uniform really suits Hugh. And I do believe it's true, especially like the red jacket. And I'm going to say that for all the men. Like they all look so good in uniform, like especially the red one. But anyway. 
So Robert is really pleased because he's going to have his regimental dinner and he's really happy because he thinks, he's like, yeah, I'm back in the army. This is so great. I'm happy. There was a scene that was cut that I've read in the script book where Robert is very happy, like I said, because he's have this regimental dinner. He's really happy to be back in the army. And Cora says to him, you look very bouncy. <laughs> and she tells him, well, I wish I could be as happy about it as you are. And I'm kind of sad that we didn't have that because Robert is really affected by the fact that the army doesn't want him. And Cora, well, she is really happy by the fact that the army doesn't want him because she has already been the wife that is waiting for her husband to come home after war. When Robert was at war, she had to wait for month and month and hoping that he would not die. I mean, I can't imagine what it felt like. So obviously she is not happy if he's back in the army because that means, I mean, she has to go through it all again. And then after that, again, it was cut. Uh, she has the talk with O'Brien and she says, what can I do? Because they talk about it and uh, O'Brien says, it would be really hard for you. And Cora says, what can I do? I suppose men must fight and women must weep. And O'Brien answers her, it seems to me that women must weep whatever men choose to get up to. I thought it was kind of funny what she says. I think season two is a really hard season for Cobert Bananas. Because you have the two sides, you have Robert really wanting to go to war and being sad because he will not go. And then you have Cora being happy that he will not go to war, but she doesn't know what to say or do to cheer her husband up. Because at that moment, Robert is happy because he thinks he's back in the army. So he has his regimental dinner. They're all dressed in red jacket. They, all, they look very, very good. And so he's happy because he even says, I do not feel like a fraud. And then he even says, yeah, I'm ready to go to France. And then the general tells him, My dear fellow, we're not as heartless as that. The position's only an honorary one. Nobody expects you to go to war. And at that moment, you realize that the general, by saying that, he thought it would be a relief for Robert. Like, we're not heartless. You will not go to war. Me, calm down. But actually, Robert, it's a slap in his face. Because he thought they're going to say, yes, you're going to go to war. You're going to lead battle. And that moment... He's like, an honorary one. Really? And you can feel his disappointment. And so I, I like this exchange because you have one side, it's like, no, good news, we're not go. But for Robert, it's like the worst news ever. It's like, what? And you feel, you really feel how it affected him. And he still feels like a fraud. And he's like, my heir and so many other men that I know are there fighting and I'm here doing what exactly? And so we have a little COVID scene. And when he comes to Cora's room, Cora, she senses that something is not right. Is anything the matter? Nothing, except that today has shown me I am not only a worthless man, but also a bad-tempered and ungrateful one. I mean, you really, he feels so bad about himself. And so she tries to, you know, she tries to joke and she says, But we all know that. Can I help? Because she realized there's something. is like, well, no, you can't. Like, I'm worth this. And I had to mention that because I think lots of you have already seen that somewhere, this comment. But Julian made a comment again. And he said, I always feel they're very good at being married, these two. Obviously, talking about Hugh and Elizabeth. What makes me laugh even more is that at that moment, Liz Trubridge said, yeah, but they've already been married a couple. And 
Jun Hikaha and say, yeah, they've been married half a dozen times, didn't they? Well, not quite, children. We wish. We wish they've been married half a dozen times, but it's just only the half of half a dozen times. Is that it? Yeah, well, three times. We wish it was half a dozen. But yeah, I agree. They're really good at being married. And so yeah, we have Robert slowly starting to fall into depression at that moment. So we had the ones that are at home and some of them want to go at the front. Then we have the ones that are at the front, like Matthew. This is the first shot we have. It's during the Battle of the Somme, it's Matthew. And actually, a little fun fact about the trenches. There were a man that had transformed his feet as the First World War trenches. And so they used that to shot the trenches scene. So it's actually in a feed of someone that was a fan of the First World War that he beat trenches in his field. So they shot there. And the interior of the trenches, so like the places where they have their beds, that was shot at Eating Studios. And when I learned that, I was so shocked because it feels so real, like all the dirt and when it moves. And I mean, this is incredible. I already said it. This is incredible. And so well, you have Matthew at warm and you know, they have a talk like it's weird to think about some people. They live their lives like not like nothing is happening, but it's weird to think that, yes, there are people that are getting up in the bed and having a nice breakfast. And Matthew, he says, I think of my life at Downton. It seems like another world. And when Matthew comes home, Mary, she asks him, like, how was it? How does it feel to be at war? And you realize at first he wants to say something. Then he says, well, I can't really talk about it. And that must be the hardest part because you realize that those who have been at war have lived through things and you want to help them, but you can't because they can't really talk about it because it's awful. So you have this kind of, um, yeah, things you can't talk about except with the one that have been there. A bit like, you know, like Bates and Robert have really close because they've been through the same things. Things that they can't talk about except maybe together or just they can't talk about at all. So, yeah. But Matthew is not the only one at the front. I mean, we talked about him. Thomas is here too. Well, it's not Thomas. It's Corporal Barrow now. But so we, we had Mrs. Patmore made a little joke. It would be a nasty shock for Thomas because obviously he wanted to be in the medical corps because he thought he would be safe. Well, that didn't go according to plan. And he meets Matthew in the trenches. And when Matthew sees him, he's like, well, you would never believe where I've just been. It was just after he came back to Downton. And yeah, but you can feel that Thomas, he's, uh, he's not really pleased to be here, like definitely. And there's a moment he is talking with the man and they're talking about the fact that, you know, I thought that medical call, we're going to be safe, but we're not. And this man at the moment just got shot in the head, just in front of Thomas. And you see on his face, like horror and fright. And then Thomas invites Matthew to take a cup of tea uh, in the trenches. And I talk a bit about downtown, you know, life, like what is happening. And he says, well, Lady Edith is driving. Sybil is going to be a nurse. I mean, you know, like about what's happening back home. And so Thomas, he asks Matthew if there's a possibility that he could be transferred to the hospital. So back at downtown. 
because obviously you realize he doesn't want to be here because it's awful. And Matthew, he tells him, well, you have to be discharged first and then we have to pull a few strings. So yeah, that would be complicated. And Thomas even suggested, what would my mother say? Me drinking tea with the future Earl of Grantham. And I love what Matthew says. War has a way of distinguishing between the things that matter and the things that don't. That's why also that the whole thing about social classes, it not collapsed, but the vision of it kind of collapses after the war because you have fought alongside men that usually you would never even meet. Like, I mean, even if Matthew is an upper middle class, I mean, Thomas, he was a footman. You know, like, you would never be alongside those, but then you fight with them, so obviously you see them differently. It's the same with Bates and Robert, actually, because Bates is supposed to be a servant, but for Robert, he's, he's his best friend. And then in the end, you see Thomas alone in the trenches with a lighter. At the beginning, you, you think he's going to light his cigarettes, but actually then he keeps the lighter open and he takes his hand and he puts his hand up so we just out of the trenches and then he got shot in the hand. So we realize he did that because he wants to be discharged. He even says, thank you for my deliverance. And this is, I'm not going to say this is a brave thing to do, but I do not believe that we now, that we can judge what happened there because we weren't there. But if you were suspected of injuring yourself, your sentence was even worse than being killed in battle. And so you have to make sure that no one will see you and that your injury could not be seen as self-inflicted. Well, of course, it's not self-inflicted there, but it's a bit like you asked for it. I don't know if you know what I mean. To be honest, I really feel sorry for him because he's, he's nasty. We have to say that. I mean, we, we talked about it during season one. But, you know, at that moment, you're like, I don't think you wish that for anybody. Yeah. And I mean, we need Thomas. So we needed him to be able to go back to downtown. So yeah, but I really felt sorry for him. And another comment that Julian made. So he, he said that they all look good in uniforms, but they not just look good. They look convincing. Like at the moment we see so Dr. Clarkson in uniform. So he feels like it's not just an actor that put on uniform. It feels like a real major or you have lieutenant corporal. Like, yeah, they're convincing. Like you can feel, yeah, they are in the military, the army and stuff. And they look good. Especially, I want to repeat again, but the red jacket. I love, love that uniform. So we talked about how war has changed things and about the men, the ones that are at the front that wish they were not, and the ones that were at home that some of them wish they were. So now let's talk about Matthew and Mary and Lavinia, because now there's a third person in this. I mean, Matthew and Mary was complicated enough, but now we had a third person into the circus. So... In the beginning of the episode, you have Violet, Isabel, Robert and Cora talking together while Isabel wanted to speak to them. And they talk about Matthew. And Isabel tells them that he's engaged to be married to a Miss Lavinia Soir. And they're all surprised. I mean, at that moment, Cora has to sit down. 
And so it's like, well, he, he's coming home. You know, he wants to introduce me to her. And so Corey's like, are you going to miss the concert? Isabel's like, well, it depends. Maybe he can come with her at the concert, but if you're okay with it. And so they were like, yeah, maybe it's good. Like, we need to make peace with that. Him and Mary, it's not going to happen, but okay, we need to make peace with that. And even Robert says, I just want to see him, you know, because we don't know what's going to happen. And Crash, she's worried about Mary because obviously Mary is her priority. And Mary, she was in London and she's like, well, Mary's coming home today. Like, because she thinks it would have been better if they didn't see each other. But Robert's like, no, everyone needs to make peace like with Matthew, so, you know, Mary, she will come home today. She will see Matthew. I think we'll be fine. And Isabel says, you know, like, Matthew, he's driving in Lavinia's car, so he won't meet Mary on the train. And it's a bit of a dramatic situation here. But Violet comes and says, oh, that's a relief. I hate Greek drama, you know, when everything happens off stage. It's not that dramatic, but really, like, strong scene. She comes in and says something funny. And then just, yeah, quick note from myself. Korean season two. Oh my God. I know it's the one I said, I think, in every episode or almost every episode how pretty she was. But oh my God, in season two, the whole look, like the clothes, the hair, everything, this style. I don't know what is it with it, but it just it suits her so well. I think she's even more beautiful than in season one. So I just have to say it now, but I will say it a lot. So just be prepared for that. So back to Mary. So all the girls are in Mary's room. Well, all the girls, like you have Sybil, Edith, Mary with Anna. Like she's getting ready for dinner and Cora. And so they're talking about the concert stuff. And obviously Edith, she has to put a foot in mouth especially if it comes to Mary we already talked about that and she said well yes but if you hadn't come for the concert you would have missed Matthew so she's a bit like stunned like oh Matthew's here but then of course Edith she has to say something like more like you know she has to stab Mary a second time he's coming with his fiance and even Cora's like oh Edith like you're absolutely not helping at that moment and Mary you see that she tries to keep control of the situation. She likes to appear like it's not affecting her. It's like, well, marvelous, I'm happy for him, of course. I mean, we're not going to get married, so, you know, he can be happy with whoever he wants. And then when, since she wants to keep control of the situation, she says, oh, by the way, I met a man like Richard Carlyle. I would love for you to meet him. And apparently, the way Edith talks about him, he's not really it doesn't have a really good reputation this Sir Richard Carlyle and so they're all uh, going down for dinner and Mary she waits for everybody to leave the room well except Anna and then she cries it really moves me this scene because Mary she's so afraid I mean I talk about it a lot she so wants to be this cold person that she doesn't want that know of her things especially I think in front of her sisters well, especially Edith but the fact that she's crying and that she's being emotional in front of Anna, that shows relation of trust that they have together. But I mean, you know, Anna did help her carry the corpse. So I think that creates a bond. I think it's a good, like the relationship Anna and Mary, it's a good parallel to the relationship Robert and Bates had. Um, because, you know, when he lost 
his unborn son, Robert was crying in his dressing room and he was crying in front of Bates. So kind of makes me think about that. Not going to think about it too much because it makes me very emotional. But then Matthew arrives for the concert with Lavinia and him and Mary, they exchange look. And there's something happening. I mean, every time they see each other, something, you know, it's not... I mean, they loved each other and you cannot tell me that they don't love each other anymore. And so Lavinia arrives and <laughs> Violet. So, that's Mary's replacement. Well, I suppose looks aren't everything. I think she seems rather sweet. I'm afraid meeting us all together must be very intimidating. I do hope so. Violet, she's a bit angry, you know, because she she wanted Matthew and Mary together. So this new... This new girl there, she doesn't like her. And even Carson and Mrs. Hughes, they talk about it. Because Carson, he's a bit angry at Matthew because he broke Lady Mary's heart. Lady Mary broke her own heart. <laughs> That's if she has a heart to break. I don't think we're ever going to see eye to eye on this, Mrs. Hughes. She refused him when she thought he'd have nothing. And when he was here again, she wanted him back. I thought caution was a virtue. Caution may be, self-interest is not. And then they talk a bit about Lavinia and apparently where she's not from the aristocracy. So Carson is like, what, who is she? I mean, she can't be the replacement of my Lady Mary. That's not snobbish, I suppose. And I like it because Carson and Violet, they're almost the same. Like, I mean, they could be best friends. You know, if there weren't this... Like, I'm the lady, you're the butler. They would be really best friends, I'm telling you, because <laughs> they're the same. It makes me laugh, too, because he's so like, she can't be a countess. Like, she's from the upper middle class. And I'm like, well, I'm thinking back when Robert married Cora. I'm like, well, she wasn't from the aristocracy either, and she was American. So I wondered why Carson thought about that. But yeah, and... During dinner, Violet, she talks babe with Lavinia. And Lavinia, she says, well, that her father is a solicitor, like Matthew. And Violet tells her, My, my, you're very well placed if you're ever in trouble with the law. Such a Violet thing to say. I love her. And actually, during this dinner scene, Carson was supposed to make things awkward for Lavinia, just to try to explain it. The pudding was but there were only one crepe for each one of them well actually uh, mrs papmore did more but there was like the first uh, round you have one for each and then you're gonna have a set second round. i don't know if i can say that but okay and so when carson gave the plate to lavinia she even says you see that i love those and there's a moment she's like oh do i dare like do i dare taking two and this moment, Carson was supposed to look at her in smiling in a way like, yes, you can, when he knew that she couldn't. And so when they go around the table, the last one to have pudding was Sibor, and there were no more crepes, so because Lavinia took two. And Sibor, she's like, you know, it's okay. I, I don't mind if I don't have pudding. Like, And Cora, she was supposed to say, oh, someone has been greedy. And so Lavinia would be like, oh, I took two. And... Sybil, obviously, she's still nice. She's like, no, it's okay. But obviously, so that she would feel bad. That was the whole thing. And obviously, she would feel bad. And everything kind of happened because Carson 
was supposed to tell her in a way that yes, she could take two when she couldn't. And so that was what was written in the script book. But Jim Carter didn't want to do it. Uh, so Jim Carter, he's the actor who plays Carson. He didn't want to do it because he thought it was too cruel for Carson to do that. He thought, no, Carson would never do that because it's not proper. And at the beginning, Julian was a bit like upset. But then he thought, you know, like we always ask actors to um, embrace their role and the character. So if he thinks that Carson would never have done it, he's like, okay, okay, we cut it in. But I'm, I'm with Jim on that. I thought that would have been too cruel to embarrass her like that. But so you have this, the dinner scene and Matthew and Mary, they are sitting side by side and they are talking really nicely, you know, um, they talk a bit about Lavinia and, and she can sense that he looks happy. I'm glad, glad to see you happy. What about you? Are you happy? I think I'm about to be happy. Does that count? Does if you mean it. You'll be the first to know. So, you know, they are easy with each other, but there's still feelings in here. You can't tell me otherwise, especially in Mary's side, but I believe Matthew's too. And so when Matthew is leaving, he's talking with Mary, and you can see that Lavinia, she's looking at them. And her look, you can see that she's a bit worried because they might be a bit too close. And while Mary, she tells him, just come back safe and sound. And he answers, well, how very glad I am that we made up when we had the chance. And he tells her that he's leaving really soon. He's going back to France. And so Mary is actually waiting for him at the train station when he's leaving. This is one of my favorite scenes of the episode too. I love this scene. I think it's, very emotional but in the way that you know like you are emotional without showing your emotions mary she gives him her lucky charms it's a little doggy i i love it i think it's so sweet i think it's a very sweet moment because he tells her would you look after mother if something happens to me it's like well of course but nothing's going to happen to you and they said well, would you look after lavinia too because uh you know she's she's young and well, you know, and she doesn't say anything at that moment, but of course she doesn't want to plan what they would do if something happens to him because they don't want anything to happen to him. I love when she says, Goodbye then. And such good luck. And you can see that she has tears in her eyes and he's very emotional too. And this moment, like I said, it's really like being emotional without showing your emotions because I think at that moment, if Mary could have cried, she would have cried because... First, it's really hard because he's leaving and you don't know if he's going to come back, but it's very hard for her because she's in love with him. And so when Mary is with Sibor and Edith, when Sibor is packing and they're just uh, them three, Sibor's like, well, I'm really glad that we made peace with Matthew. Like, everything is good now. Aren't you, Mary? Like, you know, it's like, well, you know, stop going around the bush. That's how you say it. Well, you know, yes. I'm happy with things are clear with Matthew. And she said it again, I have other fish to fry. And at the moment, Edith laughs. Their little exchange was cut, but I thought it was kind of funny. Mary asks her, why, Edith, are you jealous? And Edith answers, if your fish is Richard Carlyle, I'm not jealous. I'm embarrassed. Oh, that makes me laugh. Because 
when you realize you don't feel good about this Richard color because it's been twice that Edith almost tells you that man doesn't sound good. And even after that, Cora and Robert, when they're in the bedroom, they are talking about this Richard Carlyle. And Cora tells Robert when Mary wants to invite him here. And Robert is like, what? She wants us to invite a hawker of newspaper scandal to stay as a guest in this house. It's lucky I have a sense of irony. And so, I mean, when you listen to that, you're like, okay, I'm not sure I like this Richard Carlyle, truly. And then we have a sweet scene of Mary praying for Matthew. But first you have Edith that comes in and she kind of makes fun of her because she's like, oh, you were praying. But I think this scene is really sweet because, well, again, whatever she says, she's still in love with Matthew. And the fact that she's praying, well, she's praying for him and she hopes that nothing will happen to him. And I think this scene is really, really sweet. And so... Now, it's time for my music of the day. Well, you know what, I'm going to play it and I'm going to talk about it after. But I don't want to talk about it Cause if I talk about it Then you'll see I don't I don't know what to do about it What to do about this feeling that I don't want But I'll keep it all to myself so that was Details by Maisie Peters and I chose this song because I thought that especially the chorus makes me think about Mary and Matthew because Mary she wants Matthew to be happy because you know because she loves him so she wants him to be happy and she wants to be happy for him that he found someone new but a part of her can't because well, she's still hurt about this whole thing because she loves him. So it's really like, you know, I can keep to myself my feelings for you if you do not tell me all about like your new fiancé and stuff. And so this also can embrace, I think, her feelings for him through the whole season. Because bananas, but we're going to see Lavinia until the end. Because, yeah, that's it. I want him to be happy because I love him. But it's hard for me to watch him be happy with somebody else because I love him and I want to be with him. But in a way, she also wants to be happy for him. So she doesn't want to ruin everything because he found someone else. So it's quite a bit complicated. And I feel for Mary a lot, truly. Like, I prefer her in season two than in season one. It is two, by the way. So, yeah. New season new character we have a new mate her name is ethel and to be honest she gets on everybody's nerves when you see downstairs you really think they can't stand her yeah she's a bit confident but a bit too much and i love this scene so much so they're in the servants hall and miss pablo asks something to daisy because she wants to do the pudding for the dinner and so she tells them that she's making crepes suzette and Ethel is like, oh, I always wanted to try those. Can you save me some if they don't eat everything? And Mrs. Patmore's face at that moment when she says, Save you some crepes, is that? And she even says, you know, Would you like to sleep in her ladyship's bedroom while you're at it? 
I mean, I, I can't get enough of Mrs. Patmore saying Crepe I mean, it's my title, the one with the crepe suzette. And I thought that this could be my French word of the day, crepe. So you know what it is because you say it too. But yeah, I want to say it because it's French. And they say pancakes, but it is not like pancakes. It is completely different. It's two different things. If I tell you I want to eat crepe, it's crepe. It's not pancakes because it's different. Uh, crepe, it's written C-R-E with a circumflex accent, if that's how you say it, but that's how you've written it in French. P-E-S. And so actually, crepe, it's a traditional dish from Brittany, which is a region of the west of France. It's very, very popular. We even have a day for it, which is called La Chandeleur, and it's on the 2nd of February. So it's really something. First, it's traditionally from Brittany, La Bretagne, but I never met a French person that do not like crepe. And also for the why is crepe Suzette, the legend, it's a legend, I don't know if it's true, but says that it was named Suzette in honor of an actress who was called Suzanne Reichenberg and she was an actress de la Comédie Française. So it's une crepe with a sauce uh, with sugar, butter and orange juice and an orange liqueur. I don't know if you say it that that way, but there's some liquor alcohol in it. Just to keep it simple, but yeah, so that's um, that's a pudding, and it's French, so I want to say that. But let's get back to Ethel. Who wants to eat crepe Suzette? And <laughs> I like what uh, O'Brien says. You've got a cheek on your first day, and yeah, it's her first day. And usually on your first day, you try to keep a low profile because you want them to keep you. But she doesn't. Like, since the beginning, she's like, I know how to run a house. Like, now I'm better than you, but there's a feeling like that. And then Ethel says, I want the best and I'm not ashamed to admit it. But I suppose in the end, I want to be more than just a servant. And there's actually, by saying that, it makes me think about Gwen. But the difference is the way you say it. Because Gwen, she was like, I want to be a secretary. I don't want to be in the service my whole life. But there's nothing wrong with it. You know, if you want to stay in it, that's okay. It's just not what I want to do. What Ethel is telling them here is that I want to be more. So for her, it's not enough to be a servant. And that's the difference with Gwen. Gwen was like, there's nothing wrong with being in service. I just want to do something else. And what Ethel is saying is, I want to do something better. So she's saying to everyone else, to every other servant that, now that is not a good place or a good job or that is nothing respectable with it. But like, there's so m- many things that are better. And so that's not nice for all the people around her and who she's working with saying that like that. So I can understand why she gets on everybody's nerves. And so obviously she just got herself kind of an enemy, O'Brien, which is like the worst thing that could happen to her. Like annoying O'Brien is never a good idea. And so after dinner, O'Brien tells Ethel that her ladyship wants to see her. And so obviously she's like, why? Why would you want to see me in the drawing room? And she's like, yes, she wants to tell you that she was very pleased with your work. And so obviously Ethel, she's coming up. And when she's in the drawing room, I mean, this scene is so funny because like, I'm here, your ladyship, because sorry for keeping you waiting. <laughs> Can you see Cora? She's like, like everything just... Like you just made pause, everything freezes. And they were like, what? What is she talking about? And Carson is like, what? Wait, what is happening? 
And so when you realize quickly that O'Brien made a joke and they all laugh. Like, I think this is really funny because they all laugh. And Violet is like, oh, do you think is she mad, ill or working for the Russians? But it's funny because they all make fun of her, but in a nice way, like, okay, it's funny, it was a joke. But Carson, the way he looks, he, he, he feels a bit embarrassed, like, oh my God, what just happened? And they talk about it downstairs. And Ethel is like, well, I don't know why this is funny because you don't even enjoy it. O'Brien's like, well, we enjoy it downstairs. Like, we liked it. They all find it a bit funny because I'm not saying that she has no right to have dreams. They want more, but just the way, it, there's a way of saying it. And so Ethel, she even says to Miss Papa, well, I guess they ate all the, the pancakes last night. And Miss Papa's like, yes, they did. Well, actually, they did not. But she doesn't want to give them the pancakes. So she gives the rest to the dog. And I don't know why this scene also makes me laugh. So this whole crêpe Suzette situation. And, you know, since I can't get enough of Mrs. Parmore saying crêpe Suzette, that's why I decided that it would be a great title. And again, because it's food and I love eating. So. But actually, O'Brien, she makes fun of her again. And I don't understand why Ethel, she just fell right into it again. Because O'Brien says that she needs to check the plugs. And Carson, where he's doing his rounds and he sees Ethel, he said, well, no, go, go to bed, you know. Mr. Brian, she's making fun of you. And so in the end, Ethel, she's in her room crying because obviously she's been a bit bullied by O'Brien. It's not fun. And Anna, she sees that and instantly she tries to comfort her. And that is why I love Anna because she's so sweet. Like, because Ethel, she really gets on everybody's nerves. But Anna, the first thing, she thinks when she sees some, somebody crying, she's like, okay, what is happening? And Anna's like, you know, maybe you need to stop bragging about what you're going to do when you leave service because there's, there's some of us that we never leave service. And, and you know, and I, I agree with Anna. It's, again, it's the way she's saying it. Like, I'm going to leave service because I'm better than you. Yeah, it almost feels like they're nothing. I don't know if you understand what I mean. But Anna is not really in a nice place at the moment. And uh, Ethel, she tells her, But you've got to have dreams. Don't you have any dreams? Of course I do. Big dreams. It's just that I know now they won't be coming true. And Anna, my heart is breaking for her in this episode, truly. But why? Why Anna is heartbroken? Let's start at the beginning. So Bates, um, at the beginning of the episode, he is in London because his mother died. We saw that it was William who dressed Robert because he wasn't there. And actually he arrives at Downton at the same time as Lady Mary, so she gave him a lift to the house. And when he arrives at Downton, he has a talk with Robert. And actually this scene was cut, but I thought it was really interesting, so I'm going to explain it to you. So they talk about where well, his mother, her house, and Bates tells Robert that he wants to marry Anna. And Robert says to him that they could have a cottage, that he would see if he can give them one. And then Bates tells him about him wanting to divorce his wife. Well, obviously, Robert's not very pleased. And he says to Bates that it's best if they don't mention that to Lady Grantham, because we know that Cora, she's not very keen on Bates, but it's best to not mention that because he's lame, he was in prison for theft. But if he wants to get a divorce, that's a bit too much. So don't don't talk about it to my wife, okay? And then Robert tells him 
I cannot approve of divorce, Bates, but we won't fall out over it. You have not made your decision lightly, so I will say no more than that. Tell me when it is settled and we'll consider the options then. And so then Bates talks with Anna and he says that he wants to marry her and even says that he talked to his lordship before talking to her. So she's a bit annoyed by it. And so that was a talk that I just told you about. That was good. Well, obviously she's so pleased. I like when she says, Mr. Bates, is this a proposal? And I love it because obviously she loves him. We saw that since episode one. Episode five, she said that she loved him. Episode six, they almost kiss. You know, a lot happened. And now you're like, oh my God, this is happening. They're so happy. They kiss finally. Yay. Everybody's happy. I mean, they talk together about their future, like the future they have together. This is such a sweet scene. Anna, she's so happy. Well, and then Ethel comes in and kind of kills the mood, but you're like, oh, finally. <sighs> well, you know, maybe not. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It makes me think about, um, I think it was a creator of a French TV show that just said, you know, happiness is boring. <laughs> and actually, that's every time I think about Anna and Bates, I think that's what Julian must have said to himself. Happiness is boring because damn, these two bananas. Because now you're like, oh, this is nice. They're going to get married. And then there's a visitor in the seventh hall. And the visitor, you don't know who she is, but you know, she says something about a story involving Lady Mary. And then she says, oh, you know, I work for Lady Flincher. Obviously, you hear that. You're like, oh, no. And well, this visitor, it's Mr. Bates's wife. Great, the wife that he wants to divorce with. So then Mrs. Hughes um, got them tea in her sitting room so they can be alone and they can have a chat, you know, the two of them. And so Mrs. Bates is back because she wants her husband back. And I mean, this whole scene, the acting is just on point. I have, well, it's always on downtown, but I just want to say, like, the actress who plays Mrs. Bates, so Maria Dory Kennedy, she is just incredible. The whole scene. No one, she says, Because I tried it on my own and I don't like it. You've got money now. We'd be comfortable. He's like, no, I want to divorce from you. I want to be with Anna. That way, you know, it's just, I worked with Lady Flincher. She heard of a story about Lady Mary. And the whole scene is just absolutely amazing. Goodness me, the public's bored with the war, you see. They like gossip and a diplomat dying in the bed of an earl's unmarried daughter. Well, that takes a ticket for the tale of the year. And then she says, but you know, the thing is, apparently she needed help to carry the body. And so, well, Anna is in it too. Obviously, Bates is not pleased about that because, well, he loves Anna. And if the scandal comes out, well, Anna is in it too. And I do have a question how and who who knew that anna was involved in this because the only person that knew about this were, were obviously cora mary anna anna never said anything mary neither cora neither but daisy saw them when she saw lady mary but she never said that she saw anna so they just took a guess like she couldn't have managed it alone so she asked her maid if you have theories about it please tell me 
because I'm quite confused about how they knew that Anna was involved. In my head, they must just have guessed it because, well, she can't carry him alone. They thought the only one that would have helped her was her maid. But I'm quite confused about this. Uh, so Mrs. Bates, she blackmails Mr. Bates and she tells him that she wants him to give him his notice and to come back to live with her. And if he doesn't, she will give the scandal to the press. And so it would kill the reputation of the whole family and of Anna too, or like the, the whole household. And then you see that Mrs. Hughes listened to everything through the grating on the wall. So Mrs. Hughes, we love you because she said, oh, I asked them to put the team in city room and you realize that she asked them to do that because she knew about the grating on the wall. So she knew something was not right. And so she wanted to listen. So Mrs. Hughes, we thank you for spying on people, but we thank you for that because she just saved the day. Well, half saved the day. But so Bates, he feels like he has to leave because first, he is very loyal to the family and to Robert because Robert, it, it's his friend. And he's in love with Anna, so he can't risk like their reputation. And Robert is very angry, and I love this scene. Because at that moment, Robert, he feels betrayed, truly. I fought to keep you. Everyone was against me, everyone, from her ladyship to Carson. They thought I was mad. But I said to them, after all that we've been through together, Bates and I, I owe him my loyalty. I appreciate that, my lord, but... But what? But loyalty doesn't matter to you. I thought we were friends, that's all. I cannot remember being more disappointed in any man. And through that whole scene, you see that Bates is holding his tears. So that makes me think about the first episode of season one, two, when he's holding his tears. But it's completely different the first time. Robert didn't want him to go, but he thought he had no choice. And at that moment, it's Bates who leaves because he has no choice. And Robert is angry. And I think what hurts Robert even more is that he can't go to war because the army doesn't want him to. So he feels like a fraud. He feels worth it. He feels like, surely, he feels like he's nothing. And Bates was his friend. And so I think it was kind of like, maybe I feel like I'm nothing. But Bates makes me think a bit better. I don't know if you know what I mean. And so at that moment, he feels like he has been betrayed by his own friend. And then we think, okay, so he's nothing is right with my life at the moment. And well, Anna. She is completely heartbroken. And she knows him. She said, I know you're doing something, Gal. I know she must have said something, that she must have threatened me. Let her ruin me. I mean, I don't care about what she said. I love you. And she says, I'd live in sin with you. This is strong. I mean, yeah, nothing more to say, but this is strong. And when she says, The only ruin that I recognize is to be without you. I mean, please. And he just tries to stay the camera that he can be because he needs to make her feel that it's his choice that, you know, yeah, I'm gonna go back with my wife, but we all know he doesn't want to. And this is, oh my God, this scene is just, this scene, I think the two, and they're like following each other, like Robert and Bates and Anna and Bates, these two scenes, you feel like, I think it's the, in this household, is the two people he loves the most. Like it, it's literally the woman he's in love with and, his best friend, kind of. And so when Mrs. Hughes said to Violet that Anna didn't feel well, well, she was completely heartbroken. Like she was a crumpled up piece of paper. And so Mrs. Hughes and Carson, they have a little talk about Bates. And Carson is like, you know, I didn't want him at first, but now 
I can't imagine the place without him. And so Mrs. Hughes, she says, I have a confession. I asked them to have tea in my sitting room because, you know, I knew about the grating on the wall and I wanted to listen to what they were talking about. Now, if I was a gentleman, I wouldn't want to know. But you're not. Fortunately. And what I think about is that now I think almost everybody in this house knows about the scandal. Because well, Carson knew it already because it was a letter, but I do believe that he didn't thought it was true because, you know, Lady Mary, she's Lady Mary. She can't be in a scandal, you know. But now, because Mrs. Hughes knows because of what Mrs. Bates told Bates, Carson knows. I think almost everybody knows except Robert. <laughs> and so then Carson is the one dressing Robert. And Robert, well, he's still angry at Bates. And Carson, he tells him the truth. Mr. Bates left because, had he not done so, his wife was planning to engulf this house in scandal. <laughs> scandal? What scandal? In the beginning, Robert is like, scandal? Really, like, what scandal? And then he sees Carson's face and he's like, what scandal? Because he realized that it's true, like, there is a scandal. It's like, what scandal? You must tell me what it is. And Carson's like, no, I won't tell you because that won't help. And truly, yeah, Robert, that won't help to know that now. But you are saying that Bates fell on his sword to protect the reputation of my family. And yes, this is exactly what happened. So you just realize now that, yeah, like I said, almost everybody knows about this scandal, except Robert. I think it's quite funny that everybody wants to protect him from that. First, you had married, say, if Papa knew about that, he would never speak to me again. Cora was like, wait, that would kill him, so I would not say it. Violet as well is best if he doesn't know. Carson never... He wanted to tell him, but he couldn't because I didn't find the right time. I didn't know how to say it. And now, again, he's like, no, it, it will not help you. So it feels like everyone wants to protect uh, Robert from the scandal because now almost everybody knows about it. And so that's the scene that precedes the one when uh, Robert is in Cora's room. And so it, that's why he says that, you know, I'm not only a worthless man, worthless man because about the fact that he, the army doesn't want him, but also a bad-tempered and, and ungrateful one because that's about Bates. And actually, so, you know, he, he says his line by Richard Carr. He said, okay, so Mary wants, wants us to invite him, a hawker of newspaper scandal. Like, okay, great. And actually, he says that because just before, Carson told him that there is a scandal that, that there's like a Damocles sword on their head. And so there was lines that were cut, but he asked Cora, do you know about a story? And he just stops. And Cora's like, what story? He's like, never mind. Good night. It's funny because there was another scene that was cut that I talked about where she almost said something, you know, like Mary's not the person you, and you know, about the scandal. And then he wanted to ask her if, do you know about a scandal? And you realize that he stopped because I think a part of him is like, I don't want to upset her about that. I don't want to worry her. Because if I ask her, do you know about a story that can be a scandal? Because in his mind, he doesn't. It's not possible that there is something that she would know and he doesn't. So I think a part of him doesn't want to upset her or to frighten her about the fact that maybe there's a scandal. Uh, so he doesn't say anything, but oh my God. You realize we're in 1916 and he still doesn't know. So Cora can be good at keeping a secret because it's been three years. I mean, well, she kind of shared it with Violet. So I think it kind of helped. But I mean, come on. And just before ending this episode, I just have a thought in my head. Every time we see 
Robert being dressed for bed. So he has his pajamas and he always puts his dressing gown, like you see it at the moment that scene with Carson. He gives him his dressing gown. But what I don't understand is why did, does he put it on when literally 10 seconds later he goes into his wife's room and the first thing he does it's taking it off. Like literally, you see the scene. Carson gives the dressing gown to him. He ties it around his waist, then goes into Cora's bedroom and he takes it off. <laughs> so every time I'm like, why do you put it on if you're going to take it off two seconds later? I know it's about, you know, them pretending they sleep apart and stuff, but like there's no use. Like what? I don't know why it makes me laugh. You know, trying to pretend we're not sleeping in the same room. But anyway, I think it's funny. So yeah, I think that's it. That was kind of a strong episode because I think it's like every first episode, it, they're longer. And they kind of sets the storyline that we're going to follow through the season. And where you have the war, you have a love triangle between Mary, Matthew and Lavinia. We have Robert falling slowly into depression. We have still... Mary and the scandal with Pamuk. We have Bates with his wife, so Anna being heartbroken. So I hope he was not too all over the place. Yeah, I hope uh, he was all right. Um, but yeah, that's it for this episode. I do hope it was not too long because, well, like I said, I love to talk. But in the end, I hope you enjoyed it. Please, if you did, and if you want, just send me a message on any social media that you like. It's just really lovely when someone just comes in and says that they love the podcast and it's really, well, sweet and it always makes my day. So if you just want to come in, in any social media. So yeah, I will see you next Sunday to talk about the second episode of season two. And until then, take care of yourself and don't forget. Vive la différence! Uh -huh.